turn with me to Hosea. Hosea, and uh, we're now in the middle of uh, that particular prophecy. Uh, Hosea, and we are in chapter 6, all the way to the end of chapter 7, and Hosea itself is approximately 14 chapters. And so you can understand what I mean when I say we are halfway through this journey. Well, the journey itself is meant to take us across the minor prophets. Hence, the theme of uh, the book, rather the theme of the series, is uh, major lessons in the minor prophets. And what we have done so far is begin with Hosea. If you were here when I introduced the entire series, I mentioned the fact that you can easily divide the minor prophets into, there are about 12 of them, into uh, sections, three sections altogether. The first four dealing primarily with uh, warnings about Israel's sin and consequently the judgment of God that was going to come upon uh, the people of Israel. The second half or the second uh, bit, which is again about four books, is, is pointing to a period when Israel was in captivity. And so God is really speaking to them in that context and also warning uh, the other two tribes that had remained behind, which is uh, normally referred to as the tribe of Judah, that if they don't repent, they will go the same way. So roughly, that's what you have. And then, lastly, you have uh, the last four, which, again, are primarily dealing with uh, God's people having come back from uh, captivity, again, to a large extent, because some of them were still there, and uh, they are in a terrible shape compared to the way they were before. And so, of course, they have their own complaints to God concerning the way they are, and also the God is assuring them and trying to say that where there is genuine repentance, there is going to be a real blessing. Now, as to how to apply this, there are two areas of application. One is the individual Christian, because God deals with us individually. And often what happens is that a, a believer begins to go into stubborn sin. Sermons are preached, and they are like water off a duck's back. The person is sort of saying, yeah, yeah. I hope they are listening, and so on. Oh, I just wouldn't be bothered, and so on. So finally, God comes in one form of temporal judgment or another. And that form of temporal judgment is, is therapeutic. It's, it's uh, restorative. It's meant to bring a person back to spiritual health. It might be in the form of uh, actual excommunication in the life of the church, or it might be just physical harm that God allows to come upon such a person. 
And they tend to know that here is God really dealing with me. This is God. There's no question about it, and so forth. But anyway, finally, there is the person's restoration, uh, being restored back to a walk with God and also being restored back to the church. And again, often, I hear this all the time, it's the person now complaining, you know, I'm back in church, but, you know, there doesn't seem to be love, people are not coming to me and embracing me and so on. You know, I'm really feeling lonely and all the rest of it. Now, in a sense, you feel like saying, okay, let me rebuke the church for not being intentional in reaching out to those that are restored. But also in your heart, you sort of say, but what were you expecting? Eh? After what you've done, the, the God's people are hurt, and consequently they are also, uh, as it were, biting they are rather leaking their knuckles as they are processing this matter. Okay, so that's one way in which you apply uh, all these 12 chapters. Another way in which you apply it is in terms of uh, the, the, the whole church, the, the people of God collectively. Because again, God's people can be stubborn so that when they are bent on their evil ways, whatever it might be, and often it is because the culture is going that way on the outside, and they imbibe it for themselves. Faithful preachers continue preaching, and faithful preachers are, as a result, ostracized, kicked out of pulpits, and you mention it, until God himself reaches a point where he judges the church. He judges churches. And there is uh, uh, either spiritual drought, or, and churches die, which is very common around the world, or there is actual persecution that comes, and churches are closed down. It could be one or the other. And then you have that phase when there are a few people that are actually crying out to God, that God might visit them. And again, you're dealing with that middle section when the state of the church is, is horrible because judgment has come, but we have God's faithful people crying out to him. And then finally, there is like a season of revival. To a large extent, the church bounces back, but it is a shadow of what it once was. Just a shadow of what it once was. And again, there is that ongoing cry to the Lord. So I quickly mention this because, you know, as I prepare my sermons, I, I tend to listen to other preachers. And I'm finding that a lot of them, who tend to be American preachers for that matter, tend to, to apply these minor prophets to their country. And so when uh, there, there is terrible immorality that is being bemoaned here, they would be saying, well, as you can see, you know, the state of America, and so on. God's judgment is about to come upon us, and so forth. And as they're going through, I'm thinking, now, hang on, hang on, hang on. When did your country become the equivalent of Israel? The equivalent of Israel is the New Testament church. 
And that's where the primary application ought to be. Now, granted, this is about nations, and perhaps we might apply it to nations loosely, but I don't think we would be right to make what Hosea is saying here to apply to Zambia. And when it is accusing princes and kings that we are now applying it to HH and parliament. I think we ought to be applying it to our church leaders. That's really where the application is. And so let's make sure we do the right thing. Very quickly, back into our text. I thought I need to just make sure we are on the same wavelength so that I don't have you sort of thinking, yeah, I wish the, the parliamentarians were, were here. Uh, we're actually here. We're the ones God is speaking to. Okay. Now, uh, the last time we basically looked at chapter 5 and went right into chapter 6, verse 3. And we're seeing there uh, God's controversy against the people of Israel, the fact that he knew so much versus their own ignorance of him. We saw the need for the prophets to sound the alarm, to blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. And we also saw the way in which Israel was tending to, to go to other nations for security and protection. And God was basically saying, that won't work at all. When condemnation comes, judgment comes, that's like leaning on a reed. It's useless. And thankfully, as we see here, God is saying, until you come to repentance. And we saw that therefore, that punishment is actually a form of discipline. It's meant to restore to health. Hence the wonderful way in which that section ended at the beginning of chapter 6. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What a wonderful response to the words of the prophet that are speaking about God's controversy and God's discipline that is looming over the heads of God's people. And they are quoted as saying, let us go back to the Lord. The rest of chapter 6, which is just a few verses remaining, and the whole of chapter 7, in fact, be even beyond that, deals with the stubborn and grievous sins of Israel. And I've deliberately entitled the sermon, Our Stubborn and Grievous Sins. It's a, it's a kind of... Uh, magnifying glass that's looking in a little more detail at what the sins of Israel were like that then led to the punishment. What the sins 
we're like. And the thing that I want us to notice there is what I'm calling stubborn and grievous. Stubborn and grievous sin. And really, it is that which tends to merit judgment. I often find that uh, with, with Christians, they assume that, you know, when they've sinned against the Lord, and as elders you find out that you're going to sort of drag them before the church that they might apologize and then you excommunicate them and so on. And you have to say to them, no! Because we are all sinners. So if we're doing that, then yeah, the entire eldership will be in front here uh, being kicked out of church as well. It's, it's stubborn sin that gets disciplined. And the reason why is because it's, it's therapeutic. You're trying to break the back of stubborn sin. And it's, it's important for believers to, to clarify that in their minds. Otherwise, when they need help, they hide their sin when really they ought to be coming out to say, look, I've got this weakness, I've got this failure, please help me. Because that's what elders are. They're primarily uh, physicians rather than judges. It's where stubborn sin is, and that's why the sermon title is Our Stubborn and Grievous Sins, that you then see the final consequence of excommunication because you want to bring them back. And that's what we have here. As we make our journey from chapter 6, verse 4 downwards, in a sense I'll be reading, but I just want to make comments along the way because it's, it's a lengthy chapter passage, and uh, if I try to expound the whole of it, obviously we'll be here until sunrise tomorrow. So the main thing, keep in mind that there is God bemoaning the stubbornness and the grievous nature of the sins of Israel. And as we look at that, it's about our sins. Remember, not the sins of Zambia, but our sins as individuals, stubborn, or our sins as a church collectively. And the first aspect that he bemoans, which is from verse 4 down to verse 6, is primarily the fleeting nature of our love. When we are now in that state of being so backslidden that, that God's judgment is hanging over our heads. It's the, the loss of real love for the Lord. Look at the way he puts it here. Uh, first of all, he's talking about, you know, sort of giving up. What shall I do with you? Hosea 6, verse 4. Oh, Ephraim, what shall I do with you? Oh, Judah. He's including even the, the younger sister, to, so to speak. Judah. Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the word of my mouth. And my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire, notice, steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offering. 
I think the application there is, is pretty obvious when it says your love is like a morning cloud. In other words, it's very disappointing. I wake up in the morning, I look into the sky, I can see some clouds, and in my mind I'm thinking, wow, it's going to rain. Wow, we're going to have uh, this impact upon the ground. And then uh, a few hours later, it's uh, sunshine with no clouds. And you say, so what was that all about? And that's what God is saying here. That is that kind of fleeting love. You, you go to church and you sing about the love of the Lord, that you love the Lord, and so on. Uh, but really, as soon as church is over and you are where it matters the most, to make the kind of decisions that say you are serious about God's love, nothing, absolutely nothing, you are like everybody else. And God here is saying, look, th that's not the relationship I want. The relationship I want is a, a love that is durable, a love that is steadfast, a love that indeed meets all situations rather than simply one that hides behind sacrifices. Or if we were to, to talk about today, it would be in terms of worship services. I've gone to church. I've sung the praises. And perhaps I've even given money as part of my, my worship. The Lord is saying, no, that is not going to save you from the calamity that is going to come. There must be genuine love even in the midst of the decisions that take place out there. The second aspect that comes out from these uh, stubborn and um, grievous sins is the way in which their faith and faithfulness became shameless. Or, if we are applying it to ourselves, when our unfaithfulness becomes shameless. In other words, when we are among our friends, our immediate friends, we, we are even talking about it as if it's just part of life. We even start perhaps nicknaming those who are misbehaving by, by names that are sort of making them into heroes. In actual fact, we ought to be so ashamed of it and going before the Lord, uh, crying out to him. That's what he mentions now in verse 7, down to the end of chapter 6. We read there, But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There, they dealt faithlessly with me. Okay, so they were unfaithful with me. Now listen to this. Gilead is a city of evildoers, tracked with blood. As robbers lie in wait of a man, now, robbers lying in wait of a man is not one robber trying to bring down a man, but it is a group of them. And they are even talking about how they are going to make sure that they rob somebody. They're not thinking that, but Mwana, isn't this wrong? They're not thinking like that. They're the, the thinking in terms of, we will get the booty, and so forth. And he says, so the priests burned 
together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. He said, you know, if it's one priest doing it and others don't know, perhaps you may say, yes, punishing the whole lot might be unfair. But just the way in which bandits connive and plan that tonight we're going to rob that home, and they do it. He says, that's exactly the way in which priests, the very people who are supposed to be teaching the people of Israel, handling the work of worship, they're the ones who are doing this. And hence he says there in verse 10, in the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's wardom or prostitution is there. Israel is defiled. And then the chapter ends with a statement, For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed. In other words, it's not just about the other ten tribes that I'm seeing this. It, you are going the same way. I can see that happening. And so forth. And, and, and brethren, I think it's a valid point here. That what tends to happen when your heart goes astray when you are now in, on the eve of God's judgment is that you keep a company around yourself that is also following in your own wicked ways. And yes, you may be going to church, but really you have become <clears throat> a people together, who are actually deliberately living in sin out there. Living in sin. And it's not hidden in terms of among yourselves. It's not. You can even be in actual leadership. Leadership of a church. Leadership of a ministry. And so forth. But you are continuing to live in a very shameless way of unfaithfulness to God. And when you reach such levels, just know that your end is nigh. Because how else will you be helped? How else? When you no longer feel that sin is shameful. That this is not the way I'm supposed to live. But you pat each other on the back as if that lifestyle is correct before God. As we enter into chapter 7, the main thing there that uh, is being brought out, and it's a very lengthy section, from verse 1 up to verse 7, probably the longest section uh, in um, sort of put together. Uh, the Lord is saying, basically, there's one thing that you are forgetting, and it's this. I know everything. I see everything. And that's why your sin is grievous to me. Grievous to me. 
Remember, I was talk, talking about shameless unfaithfulness. Think in terms of a prostitute. Maybe even a married woman who has friends among whom they are joking about having sugar. Well, it's not a sugar mummy this time. It's a, whatever they call them. The people that give them a lot of money and so on for their misbehavior. They've been talking about them. And maybe even joking with each other, saying, look, I, I told my spouse that we've got a workshop out of town, but in actual fact, now I was Joe, and then they're laughing, and so on and so forth. Yes, they are continuing like that because the spouse at home does not know. But the point is, God knows. It's, it's the failure to realize that the one who matters the most is not my spouse. It's God. And that's the thing that he is bringing out here. Let's quickly read these seven verses, and then um, I will put everything together. It begins at the end of verse chapter 6, the second part of verse 11, and then we continue. When I restore the fortunes of my people, when I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed. There it is. I'm seeing it in front of my eyes. And the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely, the thief breaks in, and the bandits raid outside. But they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. By their evil, they make the king glad because he's part of it, and the princes by their treachery because he's part of it. They are all adulterers. They are like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire. This issue of uh, um, the heated oven and the, the baker not stirring the fire and, and then says, from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened, I'll come uh, to it when we come into the next section. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers. For with hearts like an oven, they approached their intrigue all night. Their anger smolders. In the morning, it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. All that God is saying there is, all this terrible life that's taking place in Israel, I can see it. And this is not the way my people were meant to live. Here they are, as it were, on heat. They are rushing out there in order to, to do what their passion wants them to do. And all that 
is ever before me. It is grievous to the Lord. It's not just stubborn sin because he sees it, because he knows all things, he is grieved by it. And friends, it's, it's a lesson that um, the Apostle Paul, specifically writing to the Ephesians, warns them about saying that they need to uh, avoid grieving the, the, the Holy Spirit. Who, and the point in it's chapter 4 uh, of, of Ephesians, uh, let me just quickly uh, get us to it. Um, I think it's chapter 4 or 5. I, I didn't put my finger on it. Um, yes, I found it. Verse 30. Chapter 4, verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, the point I want to raise out of that is that that grieving of the Spirit is because of stubborn sin. And I want you to notice as we begin from verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Now notice the next verse. Be angry, but not do not sin. Do not let the sin, the sun rather, go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Notice there, he's saying, yes, you can be angry, but in a moment, because of what you have seen. But if you continue in anger, well, some consequence is going to happen in the end, you will sin against the Lord. Again, verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Again, there it is. It's get a job and commit yourself to earning more than you consume so that you can even have some extra to bless other people with. Rather than you kicking work in the face and then being a beggar. And then in the process, because people are not giving you, you end up stealing. Again, you can see it is not a one-off activity. It becomes a lifestyle. Verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Again, there the point you can't miss is that it is ongoing, the gossiping, the, the use of uh, words in a way that is corrupting the people who are listening to you. It's become a way of life. In fact, after he talks about not grieving the Holy Spirit, listen to verse 31. 
Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Again, exactly the same thing. You find that if you are bitter towards somebody and you are now in the company of people who are close enough to you, you start producing the bitter words and you're corrupting the people who are around you towards that other person. And it's just the way you are constantly talking, constantly talking. And in the process, those other people also begin to think negatively and badly about that person. And while you are doing that, you are grieving the Holy Spirit. You're grieving. Your sin is grievous. So that's why, again, the title of my sermon was Our Stubborn and Grievous Sins. When God is seeing all this as the lifestyle of his people, because he sees all things, they, they are grievous to him. Because that's not the way God's people are supposed to live. That's not the way they're supposed to live. But that's exactly the way in which the Israelites were living. And therefore corrupting the minds of the innocent. The second last section, actually third last, is where there is a little bit of the oven. But this is now about their unequal yoke with unbelieving nations. The nations around them. And uh, again, the application to us will be pretty obvious. So I've simply called it our unequal yoke with unbelievers. Our unequal yoke with unbelievers. Again, it's obvious. When a person has backslidden, you can't miss it from the company they keep. Their closest friends become unbelievers. Now, they will tell you that I don't do what they do. That's what they will tell you. But how come you are so comfortable in the midst of unbelievers? How come? Well, let's listen to this. Verse 8 to verse, um, actually, it's all the way to verse uh, 13. All the way to verse 13. So I've combined all these verses. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples, and peoples in the Old Testament would be nations, nations being non-Jews. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, rather, calling to Egypt. There you are, the nations or peoples, going to Assyria. As they go, I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like birds of the heavens. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. 
I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. I've already introduced this, and it's true. I've seen this in pastoral ministry a lot. It's, the excuse is, you know, I don't have friends in the church. But yeah, go make them. You know, visit the saints. Encourage the brethren. Disciple the new believers. Strengthen the weak. And so, there's so much you can do in the context of fellowship among the people of God. The truth is, your heart is no longer there. Your heart is no longer in tune with God. And therefore, you find yourself more comfortable among the unbelievers. Because they are not questioning the things you want to talk about. They are not questioning some of the things you are doing in their presence. And therefore, you are comfortable. With Israel, it was simply the fact that they knew that God's judgment might fall any time. And so what they did is they went to the big powers in their own days. So Egypt was the, the big power that was later overtaken by Assyria. And so you can understand when God says, you are calling to Egypt and you are going to Assyria. These are like the United States and China, so to speak, of the then day. And so they are going to them in order to basically say, let's be in an in alliance. We are your friends, and so on. And basically what God says here is that, in fact, through them, I will come and discipline you. You are going to, uh, to be disciplined even through the very people you are rushing to. So claiming that you, you, you don't do what they do is not enough. The question is, how can light be so much at home in darkness. How? Unless the light is being dimmed and dimmed and dimmed until the light becomes like darkness itself. That's the only way. Otherwise, what will happen is this, that when you are with Egyptians and Assyrians, you are correcting them about their lifestyle. And it is them who will now start avoiding you. Because they don't like the fact that you keep correcting them. They don't like it. And so in the end, they are the ones who push you out of their lives. One clear sign that you have gone perhaps beyond repair is when the people whose company you love the most are unbelievers. But lastly, <clears throat> it's uh, the end of the chapter. I'm calling it our superficial repentance. Our superficial repentance. And it's uh, God sees all things. So he knows when our repentance is simply to avoid discipline, to avoid punishment. It's, it's not 
deep down there saying, I, I, I hate the sins that made thee mourn and drove thee from my breast. I hate those sins. It's not that. Rather, it's, mm, if I don't do something here, you can end up being punished, disciplined, and so forth. And so, okay, okay, I, I've changed. Yeah, I yeah, know, I've, I've stopped. I've, I've stopped. That life, I've stopped. But all that has happened is that it goes deeper underground. The, the sinful life actually continues. It's just, if it was on the phone, you just change the pin. That's what, just change the pin. And it continues there. Look at the way he puts it here. Um, it says in verse 14, they do not cry to me from the heart. That's the issue. From the heart. But they wail upon their beds very loud on their beds. But actually, it's not from the heart. For grain and wine, they gush themselves. They rebel against me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. So they're still continuing. But there they are on the outside, really crying aloud about their repentance. But God is saying, I know it's not from their hearts. They return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword. So again, the punishment is coming. Because of the insolence of their tongues, this shall be their derision or their complete disappointment in the land of Egypt, where they are going. Egypt will not help them at all. That's the most difficult part for elders to help somebody who's gone and gone and gone in sin. It's the fact that when you have finally caught up with them, they will admit. And they may even say, sorry, I was a fool. I shouldn't have done this, and so on. And from what you can see, because you are human, okay, what else are we to do? The person has said they are sorry for what they've done. Let's take what they've said as real. But often you can still see that that commitment that was once there is not really there. That they've sort of come into a, a position of not commitment, but I'm there. At least you can see, I'm there. What's your problem? I'm there. It's not genuine. It's not from the heart. It's not, I, I, I really want to glorify God in my life. There isn't that devotion and passion that's supposed to be there for the things of God. It's, it's a slip service until 
they are caught again. So it becomes a whole cycle. Caught again. And then again it's, I'm sorry. Well, elders can be cheated. God can't. God says here that they cry to me, but they don't do it from the heart. It's a profession they are making. It's not real. Because me, I am seeing they are still treacherous, he says. They are still devising evil against me. Look at them. It's actually happening. Look. And friends, when we get to that place, just know that we are beyond redemption. Let me quickly go through what we have seen under this chapter. First of all, it is the fleeting nature of love, our love. It's, we don't really love the Lord. We become shameless in our unfaithfulness. We have our friends who also are professing to be Christians, and we are agreeing with each other in those sinful ways. We overlook the fact that God, who is seeing our sins, he sees everything, that is actually grieved, deeply grieved by what is going on. We, 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 we overlook that entirely. We treat God as if he is one of us. And then our closest friends are those who are um, cushioning the impact of a guilty conscience. The world, sinners, unconverted people, those are the ones now that become our closest friends. And yes, when friends who are Christians, catch up with us, we repent. I'm really sorry, guys. I'm really sorry. But as soon as they've gone, we've gone right back to our sinful ways. Church leaders catch up with us, same thing. I'm sorry. But we don't make the actual change, the actual transformation that ought to put us on solid ground positively. All I'm saying, friends, is remember, this is not about America or about Zambia. This is about us as individuals who are claiming to walk with the Lord. Is this describing you today? Is it? That you know you are continuing in sin. You know it. The thing is, you are being like, as he puts it here, a cake not turned, and he's going to turn you. The issue about the cake not turned is uh, when it's in an oven and the fire is coming from one side, if you don't turn it, well, it gets completely burnt at the bottom, while at the top, 
we are still waiting for it uh, to turn. It's, uh, it, it's, it's a picture of uh, a, a person who has not been chastised, and therefore they are still enjoying comfort while they are living in sin. And that sin is destroying them from the bottom, whereas if God used providence to turn them round, they would deal quickly with that sinful life. Perhaps that's where you are. That up to now, God's temporal judgment and the church's discipline hasn't caught up with you. And therefore, you are continuing. You are continuing as if God is blind. He's not. He wants you to repent. He wants you to turn. And that's why he's cutting you with the words of the prophets. As we read earlier on, I think it was in chapter 6, that this is what I am doing to them. Uh, with the words of the prophets, um, he says, Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets, I've slain them by the words of my mouth. That's what he's doing even today. But the question is, are you responding? Are you? Remember, these four books, beginning with Hosea, were warnings. Israel, stop! Israel, stop! Israel, stop! And Israel was not stopping. That could easily be you. That you listen to these words, and you're thinking, well, they haven't caught me yet. So why should I change? May God have mercy on all of us. Amen.